continuing our series in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father God, we come to you. It is our desire to not only understand your word, but to love it, to cherish it, to live it out. And I pray that you would anoint me and enable me to faithfully preach it and each one of us to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In verse 33 of this chapter, Peter says that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was an evidence that Jesus has ascended to his throne on high. Uh, The spirit that was lost by Adam and by Eve was regained by the second Adam and uh, was distributed to uh, to the church. And so a logical question that might be asked is, how come, if this is the evidence that he is on his throne, how come Jesus did not send the Spirit ten days earlier, on the day that he ascended to heaven. And, uh, you know, the first phrase of verse 1 might be part of the answer. It says that uh, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, all of those festivals were anticipating various facets of Christ's work and redemption. And so the Spirit had to come on the day that Pentecost was assigned. But that still begs the question, why was Pentecost not made to be on the 40th day when Jesus ascended rather than um, on the 50th day. There was obviously something important that was happening during these 10 days previous. And some commentators point out, okay, well, they had to pray for Pentecost, and there was prayer that was going up on the 10th day. But I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. And this is a chapter that gives us a behind-the-scenes look as to some of the things that were going on, uh, not only over the past ten days, but going all the way back to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. Now, this is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And uh, the woman here is the bride of Christ, which has been longing, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. This is a reference to uh, Satan. It says, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman. Well, actually, let me just stop there at that first phrase, verse 4, because that gives us a hint as to the number of angels that rebelled and went with Satan. Stars were symbols in the scripture of the angels. And so this is indicating that there were a third of the angels that became bad angels, that became demons, and two-thirds they're fighting on our side. I like those kind of odds. 
anyway, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so this is giving us a hint as to who it was that was motivating Herod to destroy uh, the Lord Jesus when he destroyed all of the children in Bethlehem. Uh, they may have been tempted to think that they were wrestling with flesh and blood. Whereas God in Revelation says, no, there's something that was going on behind Herod that was motivating him. And it was this dragon, it was Satan who was moving him to destroy the seed as soon as it was born. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so that's a reference to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And this is a very encouraging note to me because with the ascension of Christ to the throne room, there is no more place for Satan up there. Uh, he can no longer accuse the brethren before the throne like he did in the book of Job. Remember in the book of Job? He appears right in the throne room of God accusing Job of this sin. And uh, what happens is when Christ goes to heaven, he's establishing the kingdom of heaven and he clears out heaven out of this vile serpent and all of his angels. Now, God could have done that just with a word. He could have said, okay, you're out of here, and all of the demons would have been cast onto the earth. But ordinarily, God chooses to work through his agents. In this case, it was Michael the archangel and all of the other angels that were assigned uh, to his uh, charge. And they had a major battle to fight. It was not automatic any more than it's automatic for us when we're engaging any, in any kind of struggle. Um, and yet they win. Uh, it doesn't say over what period of time that they win, but they win. And I believe that there was a connection between the prayers of the saints that we looked at in Acts chapter 1 and what's going on in the heavenlies in this battle here. Um, and that's pretty similar to what was happening in Daniel chapter 10, if you want to cross-reference there. In Daniel 10, Daniel has been fasting and praying for three weeks, and then it talks about Michael the archangel coming and saying, man, we've been fighting for three weeks and finally have gotten through to you. There was a connection between his prayers and that warfare. Going on to verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now the kingdom of heaven is the base of all of our operations. In Christ's throne right now, uh, his whole throne room is a sinless place of perfe perfection. From here on in, what's happening is that the kingdom of heaven is invading the earth. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so our job is uh, not going to be accomplished here on earth until God's will is done on earth just like as it is done in heaven. And in Acts 2, verse 33, uh, Peter says that the Spirit was sent as a sign that he now is indeed ruling on his throne. Satan has been dislodged from heaven, and now the battlefield's not up there. No more battles up there. 
The only battles take place upon the earth and in the atmosphere that's around the earth, the first heaven, as it were. And uh, these angels are sent to be ministering spirits to us. They don't engage in battle unless we are engaged in battle. There is a connection between what we do and what the angels do. Verses 11 and following. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Here is what we are responsible to do. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so, in the rest of the chapter, he talks about the persecution that goes on in the book of Acts and has continued to uh, this day. But the reason that Satan is bringing the severe persecutions, not because Satan is winning, it's because he is losing the, the battle. It's because he has a short time, according to verse 12, and because he has a restricted domain, verse 13, and that restricted domain is becoming increasingly restricted as various parts of the world are Christianized. And so he's enraged. He's a defeated enemy. He's enraged. And the, the church has been given authority over him. And so I think Revelation 12 forms a marvelous behind-the-scenes background as to the persecution that's going to be going on in the book of Acts, as well as the utter confidence that the church in Acts has that Christ will win the victory uh, through his church. Uh, verse 14, he says, But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed out water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now here it's interesting, uh, with the symbolism that he's using, he's saying even the earth is being used uh, to benefit the church. All of creation is working together for the good of the church. In fact, uh, isn't that what Romans 8, 28 says? That, that this God purpose, that all things work together for the good of those who love Him and for the advancement uh, of His kingdom. And so, when we see all kinds of persecution that's going on around us, we should not be looking at the cup as half empty. We have a tendency to be pessimistic and say, woe is me, you know, everything's getting worse and worse. The reason there is more persecution today than there has been at any other time in world history is because there's been a greater advancement of the kingdom now than any other time in history. There are more Christians today than there were in the book of Acts, by far more Christians. And so if Satan was enraged at them back then, think of how enraged he's going to be right now. He knows his time is short. And so uh, he ends this chapter, verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great chapter. What an encouragement this is. And so this morning, if you flip back to Acts chapter 2, what I want to do is I want to encourage you by looking at these four verses from Satan's perspective. What did Satan see when he came here? Uh, sometimes when you know what the enemy is thinking, it can be encouraging. I just finished reading a biography um, of uh, uh, Robert, General Robert E. Lee. And 
some of the northern generals were really frustrated because Robert E. Lee seemed to be able to anticipate their every move. And uh, one of the leaders even said, it's almost as if he could read our minds, as if he was in our secret councils, uh, because of uh, the way he was able to anticipate. And General Lee Lee said, no, it's God's providence, and I do know some of these generals, but uh, Abraham Lincoln is going to be eventually appointing somebody that I don't know, and I will be at a disadvantage. Well, we are not at a disadvantage because our general, Jesus Christ, he knows his enemy inside and out. And he's revealed to us everything that we need to know about that enemy. Amen? And so, today's sermon is titled, What Satan Saw at Pentecost. First of all, Satan saw a predestined plan that he hated. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, I've often imagined that in the 1,500 years before this, that uh, Israel had to celebrate all of these festivals, that every time a festival came around, which was predicting the work of Christ in the future, Satan just had a sick feeling in his stomach. It just really bothered him that this predestined plan of the Lord was uh, going forward. 53 days before Acts chapter 2 was the Feast of Passover. Now, Passover for 1,500 years had been predicting every detail of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I, sometime I need to teach on it. It's just amazing all of the little tiny details about that uh, crucifixion that happened. And they were fulfilled to a T. And the next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that talked about Jesus being in the grave. And then the, 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 the Festival of first fruits that predicted uh, the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of, uh, out of the tomb. And Satan did everything he could to prevent that, to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And while he was on the cross to try to frustrate uh, Christ's purposes, and yet he was utterly unsuccessful. And so what he knows after the resurrection of Christ, he knows he's a defeated enemy. But he's going to do everything in his power to make sure if he's going down, he's going to go down making as much destruction and havoc as he can possibly do. And so the feast that came 50 days later, Pentecost, was fulfilled on this day. Ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve lost the spirit, God had prophesied that the Messiah, through his life, his perfect life and his death, would regain the spirit that had been lost and would give it back to his people. And there was nothing Satan could do about that. To me, these are very encouraging words. The spirit came right on schedule, not one day too soon, not one day too late. And uh, it gives uh, us a great deal of joy, and it gives Satan a great deal of heartburn. Now, I'm not going to cover all of the details of Pentecost today, because I went over those several weeks ago. But let me remind you of three things that happened at every Pentecost celebration. The first was a reminding in the celebration of Mount Sinai and of the giving of the law, and there was the reading of the law. And the reason for this was that the first Pentecost to be celebrated was on Mount Sinai. In fact, Jewish tradition says that the law was given in 70 languages of the world. And so there's even a connection with the tongues in this passage uh, that he's talking about. But in any case, they would read the law uh, that was given on Mount Sinai. Now, unlike the giving of the law that was given to Moses when uh, there was no blood sacrifice, there was no temple, Jeremiah, and there's other passages, foreshadow that the 
the giving of the law here is going to be written on the tablets of the heart by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be in the Temple Mount. Now, just think of the difference between Mount Sinai and the mountain that, um, uh, that the temple was located on. Both had the law. In fact, it was exactly the same ten uh, commandments on those two tablets of stone that were on Mount Sinai that were put into the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. So what's the difference? On one, there is no blood. On the other, there is blood. On one, there's judgments, no mercy. In the other, there is the same commandments, but it's in the mercy seat. And since... Uh, the time of, well, actually from the time of uh, Adam, anyone who has tried to keep the laws of God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus and apart from the empowering of the Spirit has been doomed to failure. But what all through these years they were anticipating is the coming of the Holy Spirit when people would be enabled to keep that law joyfully by His power and by His grace. It would be a delight. Now, the second feature of Pentecost that we looked at was marriage. This was the marriage ceremony between Jesus and his bride. In fact, in the Sephardic Jewish tradition, to this day, they, they read a marriage covenant on the day of Pentecost. Uh, marriage was a big part of what it was. And to me, I think this concept of marriage just really opens up the glories of Pentecost, because at Pentecost there was an intimacy, there was a closeness that God was intending. God was dwelling in the midst of His people. No longer is there a barrier around the mountain like happened at Mount Sinai that kept all the people away. Only Moses could come near. Now all of the people are encouraged to come near. And by the way, just think of the marriage ceremony. Just as a marriage ceremony is a once and for all time um, uh, ceremony. You don't repeat it every week, you know. Uh, Pentecost is a once and for all time ceremony as well. And just think of Mount Sinai. You know, there was um, uh, there was the you know the the law being given in the seventy languages. There was the Shekinah glory of the Lord. There was the thunderings. There was all kinds of stuff that wasn't repeated over and over again every time people read the law. And yet they lived in the in the benefits of that law from that time on, just like a married couple. They have the marriage ceremony at the beginning of their lives, but from that time on, it's not like, oh, I wish we could have that marriage ceremony every week. No, they're living in the joys of that marriage. And so it's not like we're missing anything if we don't have wind filling up this um, uh, you know, assembly here and if we don't have fire on our heads and things like that. It's a, it's a one-time thing, and we live in the glorious results of it. Third feature of Pentecost was that the book of Ruth was read as a part of this ceremony. And to this day, every Jewish home that celebrates Shavuot or Pentecost uh, reads the book of Ruth. Now, what's so significant about that is this is the book that anticipates the ingathering of the Gentiles from every nation a tribe and language. And Lord willing, next week we're going to look at verses 5 through 13 and all of these uh, languages that were represented at Pentecost. And to me, this spells the defeat of Satan. His kingdom has been torn away from him and he hates this predestined plan of God. The second thing that Satan saw, and this too grieved him, was a unity. There was a unity that he feared, and that's also in verse 1. It says, They were all with one accord in one place. Now, there's nothing special about everybody being in one place. Anybody can do that. But to be all with one accord in one place, that takes grace, doesn't it? 
all with one accord in one place. The majority text, by far the vast majority of Greek manuscripts, have homothumadon, which is made up of two words meaning together of one heart. Here's how the dictionary defines that word. Homothumadon expresses in a unique way the brotherly communion of believers. Another dictionary says unanimously agree. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If Satan can bring division into this congregation, he can conquer. If Satan can sow discord and gossip and rancor and take away that one accord, that brotherly unity, he can conquer. But if we are knit together with the bonds of love, uh, we have the spirit with us, there is not a thing that Satan can do and he fears and trembles at a church that is knit together in that way. Now, what's phenomenal about this is that it's quite different from what was happening prior to Christ's death. Remember, even on the last night that he was spending with them, they were arguing amongst each other as to who was the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I am. No, I am. And um, the uh, mother of James and John earlier had asked Jesus, now, I want to ask a favor for you. And he won't give any blank check like that. He knows her too well. He says, what is it, you know? But he says, she says, I want one of my sons to be on your right hand, one on the left hand. And he says, no, it's not mine to give. And then all the others are ticked off. And they're fighting with each other. And Satan loves this fighting. Because if he can keep people at each other's throats, they're not going to be an effective army. But what happened after the resurrection of Christ is that he talked to them about the kingdom for 40 days, it says in Luke. He opened up their understanding, so they finally got it. He breathed on them the Spirit 10 days earlier, and they now were knit together. They had now been captured by a vision that was far greater than themselves. And that kingdom vision took them through. Now, Satan, I don't think, really cares if you're all together in the same room. That doesn't affect him much so long as you're not of the same mind. He doesn't care so much if you read the Scripture, so long as those Scriptures are not gripping your heart and uh, moving you with a passion to advance His kingdom. And let me just give you one illustration, and that is David when he was um, had to flee the city under Absalom's revolt. Absalom was his son. And Ahithophel was a counselor who had incredible wisdom, according to the Scripture, and he decided to side with... Absalom, And he told Absalom that they just needed to go right away with a small, well-organized, united troop of people, and they would be able to take over David. And the other counselor says, nah, you've got to take a million people. You know, you've got to take tons of people from Israel. And Absalom went with that. Now, Hithophel knew that because David and his troop were of one accord, they were so united and dedicated to their cause... He said, it didn't, wouldn't matter if you had a million people chasing after them. They would not win that battle. And so sure was he that they were now going to lose. He went home, got his house in order, and hanged himself. Committed suicide. And that was because he recognized that Satan will tremble. Satan will tremble. And other people will tremble when there are people who are of one accord. If we could be united in the cause of capturing this city for King Jesus... <coughs> It really doesn't matter how small our numbers are. Um, with the Spirit with us, of one accord, there's really nothing that our Gideon's army cannot accomplish. Third thing that Satan saw was a power that he could not handle. Verse 2. <clears throat> Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, there are three symbols 
that showed the presence of the Holy Spirit with them. Uh, there's, um, first of all, this wind that comes, and uh, it says it's a mighty rushing wind, so maybe like a tornado or a sound like a hurricane, I don't know, but some, something really awesome that came. And so that, uh, that appealed to the uh, ear gate, what they could hear. Then there was the tongues of fire on their head that they could see, and then there was the uh, tongues, there was the oral manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which they could also hear as well. But here, a, 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 a mighty rushing wind that he's talking about. Just as no one can stop the wind, so too no one can stop the advancement of the Holy Spirit. You might as well be spitting into the wind as trying to stop what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so the sound of the wind filled the house. Satan cannot stop the Spirit, but what he can do is to try to stop you from being filled with the Spirit. If he can do that, he can make you powerless. But if you have the Holy Spirit within you, it's an unstoppable force that Satan sees. Next, there was a fire which Satan could not extinguish. Verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. I think this fire deserves a little bit of explanation because I think it's just a phenomenal symbol of what's going on in Pentecost. We've already seen a couple weeks ago that what was happening here is that God was establishing a new Israel and a new temple not made with stones. And this fire, I think, is such a powerful symbol of what he was doing. First, the fire demonstrates that God had indeed started a new temple. Let's just think about the old temple. Or you could even start with the tabernacle. Before there was a temple, there was a fabric and uh, different skins and whatnot uh, tabernacle. When that was dedicated, God told them, don't use your own fire. I'll make the fire. Okay, let me read that passage. Leviticus 9.24. It says, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And so God had constituted at that point the tabernacle. Prior to that, there was nothing that could be done in that tabernacle because there was no fire in which to make incense or do any of the other things that they were to do. Same thing happens in Solomon's temple. 2 Chronicles 7, 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And on Pentecost, God caused his fire to come down to symbolize the fact he has just constituted his new temple. This is dedication day. Second, this fire represented the fact that nothing is acceptable in God's temple that does not flow from God's throne room. Nothing is acceptable. God doesn't want our carnal efforts. He doesn't want self-reformation. He doesn't want self-effort or anything else that comes from our flesh. It's not these disciples who create the fire. The fire comes from above. And the same was true of the Old Testament. The very next verses, after the ones that I read uh, in Leviticus 9, uh, very next verses indicate that Nadab and Abihu didn't take fire from off the altar to put into their incense. They, they made their own fire and lit their incense. Let me read you what it says. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire. Literally, it's strange fire or foreign fire. Offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now that's how seriously God takes self-reformation. Now Aaron initially doesn't get it. Aaron is extremely angry at God, and he thinks, why is God making such a big deal over a little thing like fire? And God says, no, you have to do it my way. Here's what Moses responded. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Four times God reminds them not to give strange fire. It must be a fire lit from heaven. And in other words, true revival and true reformation flows from God and it cannot be manufactured through our own efforts, through our own techniques and our own strategies. And sadly, down through history, there have been all kinds of attempts to stir up revival through our man-made methods. And um, it's had disastrous results. We think we can manipulate God with the strange fire of emotionalism or the strange fire of false unity or the strange fire of programs. In fact, uh, in uh, Finney's book, he's got a whole list of things. If you do this, this will happen. It's a manufactured uh, revival. Um, let me give you uh, a quote from Ralph Wilkerson. I was really shocked that he would say this. He's a leading charismatic, but I was even more shocked at how many evangelicals are getting on board with him. He claims that the world can be one without any preaching or without any uh, evangelism. And the way it's one, he says... Just get the church together. Get the Roman Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians and everybody together in a massive ecumenical movement, everybody speaking in tongues, and the whole world will be one. Um, let me quote from him. The morning before we left to come home, Duplessis spoke to us from John 17, 21. Later in the meeting, uh, meeting, a Roman Catholic priest from Guatemala City spoke in an unknown tongue, and the interpretation was given by an American pilot. The interpretation was that Catholics and Protestants will march together around Latin America demonstrating unity, and once they do this, the world will believe. Uh, later on, he says, My job is to get people together, not to evangelize Latin America. I believe if we get people together, God will reach Latin America, and there's tons of people who are getting on board with this plan. Massive ecumenical movement. This is strange fire. Okay, This is seeking to induce some kind of revival uh, by the efforts that we make. And let me tell you something. The world is never going to be won by compromise. <laughs> never. It is won from that which comes down from heaven. In fact, the third point that you've got in your outlines there is that this fire symbolizes the grace and the holiness of God. After the fire fell on the altar in Leviticus 9, after Nadab and Abihu are killed, God interprets the fire. Here's the interpretation. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. His holiness consumes away sin and dross, just like fire does. The fourth thing to notice is that the fire the fire only comes once. In the old temple, it came only once, and the priests then were required to stoke the flames and never let the fire of God go out. They had to continually stoke it. Well, if you take a look at Acts 2 and verse 43, 
uh, you'll notice how it is that we uh, steadfastly keep this fire in the church. And I want you to notice it doesn't say that they continued steadfastly in expecting wind in every meeting. They continued steadfastly in expecting um, fire in every assembly or tongues to be a continual phenomenon. No, the fire falls once and God's people keep that fire burning. Here's how they do it. Verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There's the fuel that you need to keep that fire going. And any efforts at revival that avoid those four things are strange fire. And so do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? One of the things you can do is to be immersed, meditating deeply upon the Word of God, which is the Word of the Spirit. That's how God works. And be involved in these other uh, things that are mentioned there as well. Now, there's two interesting contrasts with the old temple. The first contrast is that there is now no central altar. In the Old Testament, there was one altar that the fire fell upon. Here, the fire falls upon the people, right? And so it's the people who are the temple, the people who are the altar. They're the ones who are the church. The second contrast is that in the Old Testament temple, there was only one fire, whereas now there's a flame over every head. So first, it's the people who are the temple. Second, there is a flame over every head. And so that means that the temple can be found any place that God's people are found. And I think what's neat about this is those disciples walked out of there. They were taking the temple with them. They were taking the fire with them. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so to me, this is really cool. Eventually, there's going to be a worldwide temple with a worldwide fire on which the sacrifices of the Gentiles will be offered up to God, according to Malachi. So a cool passage, very cool uh, symbolism. So there is a heaven-sent fire that Satan could not extinguish. Maybe a better way of saying that, you could cross that out. A better way of saying it is, the only way Satan can extinguish that fire in us is to keep us from abiding steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayer, prayers. If he can keep us away from that, then he's got some success. But if not, it, it, it's, a, it's an unextinguishable fire. Verse 4 goes on to talk about the presence that Satan could not fight. Verse 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, because I'm going to be spending a fair bit of time on this and one of the future sermons, I'm not sure yet which one, I'm not going to deal with that um, uh, right now. But this would have been a very frustrating thing for Satan. And I think you can see why Satan does everything he can to keep us from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, if the Spirit of God has filled us, there's nothing that can resist uh, that spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? And then finally, there was a reversal of Babel, which spelled his doom. Verse 4 goes on to say, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, because I'm going to be dealing with uh, tongues at a later uh, time as well, I, I'm not going to develop it fully here, but I do want you to notice these are real languages. Not the shudabarahanda, you know, uh, type of sounds that come out of people's uh, mouths. Uh, these were real languages, and he lists the exact languages that he's talking about in verses 5 and following. 
And uh, I'm going to spend some time in a later sermon demonstrating how the tongues of Acts chapter 2 is identical to the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, contrary to what so many Charismatics and Pentecostals say. It is the same tongues. Uh, can God continue to give the ability to speak a new language today, a language that you can understand, you could preach in, you could pray in? I would say yes. I don't see a reason why he could not do that. But I think it is so different from what so many charismatic books uh, tried to pawn off as true tongues. We'll have more to say about that later. And I do want to temper what I've just said, that, yeah, God can do that by also reminding us that... Even though God has the freedom to do anything that he wants, there was a reason why he brought those tongues at the time that he did. There was a symbolism never to be repeated again. And so here in a nutshell is the symbolism. I think based on the tongues that was spoken at the first Pentecost at Mount Sinai, that this was a sign to unbelieving Gentiles that they would be welcomed into the kingdom, and it was a sign to unbelieving Jews that if they didn't repent that there would be Gentiles knocking on their door and speaking to them in judgment, which happened in 70 A.D. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I'll just very briefly uh, touch on this aspect of the symbolism of it being a, um, a judgment. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 and following. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes. But in understanding, be mature. In the law, it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, I have never seen any, and I've read extensively in charismatic literature, I've never seen any charismatic or Pentecostal who can adequately explain this verse in terms of their theology, and yet Paul makes this the basis, the foundation for his theology of tongues. I think it's a very important, uh, very important verse here. He is saying that, first of all, tongues was a sign... Uh, some kind of a miraculous symbol. And secondly, it was a sign to unbelievers. The passage he quotes is Isaiah 28. Uh, and by the way, there are some people who think that there was miraculous tongues that was spoken then. Others say, well, it's just, uh, you know, the Assyrians talking when they came in. But in any case, he's talking about the Assyrians coming in to judge Israel because of Israel's unbelief. And as a result of Israel being scattered out, there's going to be blessing brought uh, to the Gentiles as well. And I want you to just think through the times in which tongues uh, happened previous to this, and I think you'll see this judgment blessing aspect is present. The only one it's not present in is with Adam and Eve. Okay, all tongues is is the instantaneous ability to speak a language you've never learned before, right? You can all of a sudden speak. Well, Adam and Eve were able to speak with an extensive vocabulary the moment that they were created, right? They weren't babies that had to learn over months and years how to speak. But from that point on, after the fall, there was a judgment blessing sign. Think of Genesis chapter 11 when God dispersed the nations by all of a sudden giving people tongues. <laughs> and they didn't know their previous language anymore. But it was a miraculous gift of tongues. They could now speak a new language that they had never spoken before, and that was a sign of judgment. It was also a blessing. Then the next time, 
in Mount Sinai would have been a similar sign of judgment to Israel, blessing to the world. And since Peter says that Joel was prophesying tongues, I think Joel too also fits into this pattern of, because it prophesies judgment to Israel, blessing to the Gentiles. And then the miraculous tongues prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 3 follows the same pattern. By the way, that chapter explicitly ties tongues in with evangelism. Contrary, again, to what so many charismatics uh, talk about. Uh, Zephaniah 3 says, For then I will restore to the people a pure language, literally a pure tongue, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring an offering. And then it goes on to talk about the evangelization of the world with those tongues. So here is my tentative view it is that tongues had a primary function as a witness against Israel in the first century that if they did not repent, they would be once again scattered among the Gentiles as had happened before. But it was also a sign of blessing to the Gentiles that Gentiles would be gathered in to uh, his people. Now, I know of missionaries who have been instantly given. In fact, I've got a very close friend and just shocked her when she was in Mexico and all of a sudden was able to talk fluently in, in what is Mexican? Spanish. <laughs> Mexican, I guess. Uh, with a very good accent, they said. And she understood everything that she said. And these other missionaries, they said when they had that ability, they understood everything that they said. That is much more akin to what Acts is talking about. And I think what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is talking about. And so it truly is a symbol of the spiritual reversal of Babel. While the cultures and the languages of the nations will be preserved, God is going to reach out to those nations and perhaps on occasion he'll give a person this gift in their process of evangelizing those nations. Now, it does indicate in 1 Corinthians, we saw prophecy has ceased. We saw apostleship has ceased. There's no more infallible revelation that is given. And it indicates that even tongues at some point is going to peter out. It's a different kind of ceasing that's mentioned there. I don't know, but my hypothesis is it'll peter out as the nations become evangelized. But that's just a hypothesis. I can't uh, prove that. But like I say, we're going to have a lot more to say about what is clearly laid out about tongues in Acts and in 1 Corinthians 11 through 12. But for now, I think we could just rejoice that despite the fact that Satan is a raging enemy and he is doing everything that he can to destroy the church and to hinder and to frustrate our purposes, we have nothing to fear and Satan has everything to fear. Just quickly going over that outline again. He sees a predestined plan that he hates. He sees a unity that he's scared to death of and so he's going to try to destroy that unity. Uh, he sees a power of God's Spirit in the church that he cannot handle, a fire of God's holiness and grace which he cannot extinguish, and uh, which is destined eventually to purify the world, a presence he cannot fight, a reversal of Babel which spells his doom. And so it's my prayer that God would hasten the day in which every nation, tribe, and language would be singing forth his praises to the glory of Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the great reversals that you brought about at Pentecost. We thank you that from that point on, of the increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace, there has been no end. It has been growing nonstop. 
And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for those times where we have given Satan a needless opportunity uh, to be able to defeat us and to frustrate our efforts. And I pray, Father, we would take seriously these points that uh, Satan trembles at, that he fears, that he hates. Father, that we would glory in them, that we would keep ourselves steadfast uh, in, in you. We thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit and his empowering influence in our lives. And we just pray, oh God, that you would have your way. Have your way in our lives, in our church. Have your way in this world. And may the, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord uh, and of your Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.